Because back in March, I, I uh, especially March on uh, March the 11th, as a matter of fact, two weeks before the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown began, we were commencing our study in the book of Micah as we were continuing our book-by-book -book study of the Old Testament. And we were able to complete the first two studies. This introduction that we're going to go back to tonight, that's why it's called Revisited. And the first look at chapter one, before we went into an exclusively live stream service for a time. But in that period of time, the Lord took us, that is during the pandemic, the Lord took us to the scriptures to give us all some prophetic understanding of, of what was taking place, changing for a time our study schedule, actually reversing our pattern of study temporarily. You know, we were doing Old Testament on, on Wednesday, New Testament on the weekend, but it went back and forth for a little bit. As we were taking, as the Lord was taking us to these books to encourage our hearts through the constantly changing events that were taking place. But I knew at some time the Lord would bring us back to studying the book of Micah. And that for a few reasons. The most important being that we were to continue <clears throat> as the Lord would have us in being equipped in the word of God until the Lord returns. Tonight, I am returning to the two previous studies to begin this book of Micah afresh, to give us an opportunity to update, if necessary, anything that would certainly apply to the current situation that we're experiencing today while we're in this book of Micah. And with those things in mind, let's return anew to this study of the prophecy that was given to the prophet named who is like Jehovah. That is his name, Micah. Mikayahu, who is like Jehovah. I'm going to be going really through pretty much the same notes that I did, but how many of you remember, unless you took good notes? like I know Shelley does. <laughs> so this is, I hope and pray, as, as fresh as it might have been back then. So let's read the first seven verses, though we'll come back to this and look at them more closely next time. But just to give us a flavor and a taste of where we are and where we're going. The word of the Lord that came to Micah, the Morishthite, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, or Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. The mountains shall be molten under him, and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire. And as the waters that are poured down a steep place, 
For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore I will make Samaria as an heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard. And I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley and I will discover the foundations thereof. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces. And all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she gathered it of the hire of an harlot. And they shall return to the hire of an harlot. There really is not much known about the prophet Micah, besides his residence and the time and place of his ministry. His name, Micah, which, as I mentioned earlier, is really an abbreviated form of the name Mikayahu, means who is like Jehovah. He is called by this latter full name, Mikayahu, in Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 18. Micah, Mikayahu in the Hebrew text, the Morristite prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and spake to all the people of Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed like a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the places of a forest. That quote, by the way, is from Micah chapter 3, verse 12. Now, Jesus also quotes from this prophet, from Micah. And this is important because it, it, it certainly lends tremendously to the reliability of this prophet, who he is, and that he existed, and that he was certainly a prophet of God. But Jesus quotes from this prophet in Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. When Jesus said, For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the law, uh, and, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And again, as I said, that is from Micah chapter 7, verse 6. But for Micah to be named who is like Jehovah, who is like God, is quite fitting because he spoke passionately of the incomparableness and majesty of Almighty God, as really all of the prophets did. But if we were to answer the question in Micah's name, who is like Jehovah? It would be that God stands alone. Who is like our God? Part of the problem in the world today is that we oftentimes try to compare God to things on the earth and try to compare certain things on the earth or certain people on the earth to some kind of deity. But it is futile to do that. It's wrong to do it, 
If you read the prophet Isaiah, you know that Isaiah is told by, by the Lord himself, hey, I'm God, there's no other. Who else is there? We can't compare God to anyone, to anything, to any person or power or position. There is no one like our God. He stands alone. <clears throat> so that's a, that's a very important aspect about uh, the name of Micah to be the prophet of God that says, hey, who is like our God? Here, here's, here's another problem that really will come, into, will come into play when the judgments of God are going out toward Judah and Israel, the divided kingdom. Because you left me, because you rejected me, because you disobeyed me. In so doing, you were making yourself like God. Or you were going to other gods. Or you were making other things gods. But there's no, comp there's no comparison. And the judgment that was to come upon his own people was for that very reason. Who is like our God? Who is like Jehovah? You cannot be. Those things cannot be. Then you must come and obey and worship the God who created you. Consider that between the Lord and the highest archangel of glory, there is a great gulf fixed. I, I, I'm taking that little phrase from the words of Jesus in, in the account of the rich man and Lazarus. When he tells, uh, when Abraham tells Lazarus, there's a great gulf between us. Well, there's a great gulf between the Lord and the highest archangel of glory. There is a vast chasm or gap that separates even the most exalted creature from the creator. And that, by the way, is what's in a name. What's in a name? The name Micah or Mikayahu. Who is like God? Who is like Jehovah? There is none. There is none. And there never will be. Now, Micah was from the town of Morashet, which was also called Morashet Gath and in chapter 1, verse 14. And it was a town in Judah, in the southern kingdom, about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Morishet was located in, a, in, a, in, in the plain between Judah and Philistia, that being pretty much in the area of, of uh, what have been, would, have, would have been Gath, uh, what we consider today as Gaza, or the area of Gaza. And it was full of, of corn and cattle. Now, when I mention corn again, we, we realize that uh, they didn't grow corn like we grow corn. Uh, mostly it was used, the word corn was used for, because of the kind of grain that was found in wheat and barley and, and other types of, uh, of grain. But uh, 
it was full of corn. It was full, in other words, it was full of, 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 of a lot of, uh, uh, of good things uh, for food and, and cattle as well. And the land was fair. And it was considered a lovely place to live. I have to tell you, I hope and pray that there will be a day when we can return to Israel, where we can return to see the land as it is today. Uh, there's such a beauty in it. I mean, it certainly is in, you know, like there's, there's beauty everywhere in the world, it, you know, but it's not as beautiful as heaven, of course. It's not as beautiful as a kingdom would have been that God created in, in the garden and all. But there's a beauty to Israel. There's a beauty to the land. God wanted it that way. That's one of the reasons that one, one of the things that happened to Israel when they faltered and they failed is that when they were taken out uh, into captivity, both in, in the northern kingdom to Assyria, and the southern kingdom to Babylon, that the land became desolate. For a land to be desolate means it was completely wiped out as far as what was growing on it, what was considered to be fertile farmland, it all changed. It became dry, brittle. And in effect, in and of itself was good for nothing. That's what desolate means. And the land was precious to God. So it's something for us to understand of the judgments of God. That when God brings judgments, he's bringing it upon people that he loves and upon the things that he loves. The land was judged because the people, think about this, the land was judged because the people did not take care of the land as they should have, even though it was fertile because God made it that way for them. But God also commanded them how to take care of the land and did they do that? No. They were told to give the seventh year completely to the Lord, and they didn't. So in all the numbers, when it comes to the southern kingdom, with all the numbers that, in comparison, 490 years was the judgment. And as we know prophetically, they will, they've already completed 483 years. There's seven years to go. Those seven years are called the tribulation period, and that's yet to come. Now, we need to understand that from our text, we're told that Micah ministered in the 8th century B.C. during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz, or Ahaz and Hezekiah. Now, his authorship is supported by the claim of, of the book itself, the references uh, made by Jeremiah and Jesus that we read earlier. Its unity and early acceptance as part of the canon of Scripture, the general, general agreement of scholars. Now, the dates for the writing of the prophecy would be between 735 and 725. I've heard some even up to about 740 B.C. But it's around that same range, about 735 B.C. Now, Micah was a contemporary of the great prophets Isaiah and Hosea, both who also ministered in Judah. And like Isaiah, Micah predicted the Assyrian destruction of Israel in 722 B.C. 
and the fall of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom in 685 B.C. So those are predictions that we will see in our study. And being that we concluded our study back in March uh, of the book of Jonah, which, of course, we went from Jonah into Micah, it's important to note that there are significant reasons that the prophecy of Micah follows the account of the prophet Jonah. As we left off back then with the Ninevites in sackcloth and ashes, humbling themselves under God's mighty hand, it, it wouldn't be that long before the Assyrians would actually go back to their warlike, wicked ways. Not long. It is at that time, some 50 years after the Ninevites' repentance, because of the ministry of Jonah, that Micah is now writing his prophecy and the kings of the north. And the kings of the north, I should say, are progressively on the march toward the northern kingdom of Israel. The kings being Tiglath-Pileser III, again an Assyrian king, to be followed by Shulmaneser V and Sargon II, and then, of course, eventually Sennacherib. That's more of the name that we're more familiar with historically. Sennacherib, they marched toward the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, there's a lot of little details in between all of that, you know, alliances that were made and weren't made, and we'll talk about those along the way. But the doom of Israel, as suspected and feared by Jonah, was fast approaching. And so when Micah picked up his pen, Samaria's doom was assured. Samaria, of course, being the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. The reigns of the kings mentioned in verse 1, Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, extended from 750 to 686 B.C. And therefore, the book would have been written during this time span, and certainly before 685 and Jerusalem's fall. The prophecy of Micah was written to the people both of Israel and Judah. So he writes to both the northern and the southern kingdom, the southern kingdom being Judah, northern kingdom being Israel. He was given visions concerning the judgment of Samaria and Jerusalem. And these were the respective capitals, as I said, of Israel and Judah. But as we have learned in the studying uh, every book of the scriptures, it was also written to all the people of every nation. And it was written to every generation as well. It's interesting that, you know, when you read that first, uh, that first uh, uh, verse, actually it's uh, verse 2, Hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that is therein. He's not just speaking to Israel and Judah, he's speaking to all the earth. And again, we'll study that when we get there next week. But this book was written for all of us. That is why it's in the canon of Scripture. And uh, Paul, the apostle, in a couple of places in his writings, makes it clear that the Old Testament is necessary for us. The Old Testament, or the Hebrew Scriptures, is valid for us. There actually are Christian groups and sects that, you know, today believe that once we've come to the cross of Jesus Christ, everything before the cross doesn't matter. 
It all matters. It all matters from Genesis to Revelation, not from Matthew to Revelation. Everything matters. So Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to that particular church, he writes in verses 11 and 12, now all these things happened unto them, speaking of the children of Israel, for in samples. Now, I've gone over this word with you all before, but I'll let you know that in samples are patterns or models for imitation. An, ex an example is something out before you as a, as a pattern of something. Here's an example. Let me give you an example of something. You can take it or, 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 or not. But in sample, and this is the reason why it's here in the King James Version and not in, the, in any of the other versions. And I don't know why they took it out, but it's a very important word because it, it really is a significant word in, in the Greek. And sample is a pattern or model for imitation. In other words, this isn't just for you, your knowledge. It is for you to do. It is for you to have it in you. The, the example is to be in you. That's why it's in sample, in you, and is to be lived out. So these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he stand take heed, lest he fall. We have the whole word of God to be that which encourages our hearts to follow and obey the Lord God. Every word is true. Every word is true. Every word is pure. Every word that he gives us, we are to know and we're to learn. This is why we read from cover to cover in the Bible. This is why we study the Bible here from cover to cover. Because it's all God's word. In Romans chapter 15, he says something very similar. He says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. I don't know about you, but when I read, and, and I read them as often as I can every day, when I read the Psalms and the Proverbs, I, I'm reading them for comfort most of the time. And, and much, much of what we get if, you know, from the Psalms, we're getting from somebody who, who really needed God's comfort too. That was David for the most part. And many times we see just this revealing of his heart to us, you know, and he says, he says, you know, the Lord is my ever-present help in time, of pro in time of trouble. And we, we can understand because we go through those times of trouble. And we realize we need God's patience and God's comfort. And he gives it to us in his word. That's why the word is so special for us. It should never be downplayed. It should never be put aside as, as just some thing to, to have. You know, now, now I'm, I'm going to a personal kind of thing. I, I, I just love the Bible. The Bible. I don't have to push any buttons to turn it on. I just open it, and I read God's word. Now, I'm not coming down on those of you who have a, you know, don't hide your phone just because, you know, you got your, your 
your phone Bible on. It's okay. It's all right. I'm just saying you need one of these two. This is very important because it, you've got it with you. Not about you, but phones and computers can die. But you'll always have the word here. And the more you have it here and in here and in here, the more God blesses. Every word of God is pure. Every word of God is true. Every word of God is beneficial. And we need to consider it that way. I don't know how they, how some churches can put the word of God aside and say, yeah, well, you know, there's so much controversy about this and that. Let's, let's just think good thoughts. I want to slap these people. Slap them into understanding. Listen, it's not about good thoughts. It's about right living. It's about righteousness. It's about holiness. It's about surrender. It's about sacrifice. The sacrifice, not yours or mine, the sacrifice of Jesus. The sacrifice of his heavenly Father who sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the importance of the word here. From Genesis to Revelation. Now, before considering the purpose for this prophecy, I want you to take into account that Micah pricked the conscience of the people of his day. And his message has continued to do so in every generation since then. The historical purpose of Micah's prophecy was, was to expose the people's sins and bring them to repentance. Expose sin and bring people to repentance. He ministered during the days of peace and prosperity. In our previous studies of the minor prophets, we saw a lot of that. There was times of peace and prosperity. Is that a good thing? Sometimes it is. But when your eyes are off of the God who has given you peace and prosperity and you put it on the things that you have or the things that you want or the things that you get or the things that you desire... You've taken your eyes off of the prize. And God in his patience waves at us and says, hey, 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 here I am. Here I am. Uh, okay, yeah, we know. We're, we want to, you know, and, and there's a pursuit of more and more things in the world. And God said, hey, hey, here I am. Am I going to have to yank some of this stuff away from you? so I can get your attention. You see what's happening? It's happening now in this country. The purpose of this prophecy, as well as the prophets of all the prophets, was to expose the people's sins and bring them to repent before God. So Micah ministered during days of peace and prosperity, but Judah and Israel were far from peaceful. Remember, they were still a divided nation. And in fact, there were many times when they really wanted to go to war with each other. There was an underlying social unrest churning beneath the surface of good times. Micah, as a prophet, was also concerned with the plight of the poor. 
Because he saw how the people who were prospering did not heed the word of God. Now, now you have to understand, and I want to talk about this in just a moment. I'm not, I'm not dealing with social justice from the standpoint of what we hear social, social justice is today. A social justice today is, is entirely different from the scriptures. God commanded everyone who he prospered to make sure that if there were those who needed, that they, from their abundance, would be able to give them. It had to come from the heart, right? It comes from the heart. But it was a command of the Lord. You, 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 uh, you reap, you, you, you gather your harvest together, you leave a little bit out there for those who need. The Lord built it in to his word. It was, it was the proper biblical social construct for that time. But it's for all time. What has been done today with, with social justice? Oh, my goodness. See, Michael, Michael was, was passionately concerned with social, economic, and legal justice, but not like the world sees it today. Today, the kind of social justice that we see in the world is leading people towards a socialism and a, and a Marxism that, that uh, if, if, uh, if they have their way, is going to is going to completely de destroy a nation because it's destroyed other nations. There's a economist uh, philosopher named Friedrich Hayek, and he had a lot of things to say many many years ago about social justice. To some extent, he was a like a secular prophet uh, of what's happening today. But let me give you just a few things that, that this Friedrich Hayek said. He said, and I quote, the idea of social justice is that the state should treat different people unequally in order to make them equal. Did you catch that? The idea of social justice is that the state should treat different people unequally in order to make them equal. It's an absurdity. The social justice of today is an absurdity. He also said this, and I quote, social justice rests on the hate toward those that enjoy a comfortable position, namely upon envy. He, he saw right through all of these people who say, oh yeah, we need justice for everybody. Everybody needs to be equal. But they saw through it. He saw through it. Lastly, he said this, and without even using that term, he said, there is all the difference between treating people equally and attempting to make them equal. Wow. When I read that, I thought, man, I mean, this guy is nailing 2020 and all the riots and all the lootings and all the, you know, the BLM and the Antifa and everything else that we've seen and, and even recently seen in their attacks of, of people who are just out to, you know, to give thanks for, a, for a, a wonderful nation that we live in. There's all the difference between treating people equally and attempting to make them equal. It doesn't work. 
not in the world's sense. God's justice, God's equity, God's economy, and God's social uh, constructs are all in the scriptures. So when we mention that here tonight, at least as we prepare to study this book, understand that, that Micah preached against all forms of injustice and oppression, whether in government, the religious establishment, because even the priests were, were corrupt, the legal system, the business world, and the corrupt, wealthy landowners of his time. They weren't doing what the word of God had called them to do. And just like his contemporaries, Isaiah and Amos, Micah showed a personal concern for the well-being of orphans and widows, the defenseless, the poor, and the downtrodden. Which is what we've been called to do, both in the Old and the New Testament, both in the Hebrew Scriptures and in the writings of the Apostles and the Gospels. But in spite of his appeals for justice and compassion toward the helpless, Micah's pleas were ignored. The people would not repent. And thus, Micah warned Israel and Judah of imminent judgment. He prophesied that both nations would soon be conquered and destroyed. Israel would be crushed by the Assyrians within just a few years, and Judah would fall to the Babylonians during a series of three invasions in 605 B.C. and in 586 B.C. as well. But there were three in those two time periods. Micah foresaw these tragedies and with a sad heart warned the people of their impending doom. Now, the doctrinal or spiritual purpose of Micah's prophecy is, is in its inclusion of a powerful word on the evils of society and the responsibility of leadership. The evils of society and the responsibility of leadership. In Israel and Judah, both citizens and leaders have become increasingly corrupt. Tragically, corruption was present at every level of society. Sound familiar? This is our, this is our world. This is where we live. If it wasn't for the fact that God has given us his Holy Spirit and given us discernment of spirits, we'd be just as fooled. Tragically, corruption was, 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 was present at every level. Every level of society. Everyone was cheating. Everyone was exploiting. They were oppressing someone else. That is certainly true in many nations today, but especially in our own country. The prophet's piercing indictment of his own society stands as, as an equally forceful indictment against every society. So some of the points then as we come to the book of Micah, some of the points that we will find in his prophecy are these. First of all, individual behavior matters. Individual behavior matters. That's, that's us trusting the Lord and, and, and obeying God and obeying his word and living our lives right before the Lord. 
The second thing is that social behavior and social systems matter. They matter to God enough for him to make those things clear in the law. Now, sadly, uh, in some cases, much of the law had been misinterpreted or wrongly interpreted. Or in some cases, it was purposely interpreted uh, a certain way. But God was very clear, and we'll see that as we go through this book. Leadership and the integrity of leaders matter. All these things matter. You read the prophets, uh, I'm sorry, when you read the, the book of Proverbs, you realize that the Lord has, has, has clear, distinct issues that he brings up concerning what? Concerning kings, concerning leaders. Both handling wisdom or being foolish. There's a little foolishness going on in the world today, isn't there? From our leaders, both federal and local. Or in this case, loco. We have local leadership here, sadly. And then there's justice and concern for the poor that matters to God. Matters, it should matter to us. Sincere faith and worship matter. And obedience to God and his word matters. It may seem to be an obviously basic fact, but how we treat others is of critical importance to God. It matters how we treat others to him. Don't ever think that what you do, uh, that God turns a blind eye. Don't ever think that what you do towards someone else outside of wisdom, outside of the wisdom of God, that somehow God will turn his, his eye away. There's not one thing that God doesn't know about you and about me. There's not one thing that God doesn't know. Our individual behavior directly affects the moral and the spiritual health of our culture. As believers in Jesus Christ, we practice that here, how we take care of others, how we take care of each other. But we are to carry that out to the world. Our witness and our testimony matters to God. Our behavior affects the moral, spiritual health of our culture, our communities, our societies, our nations. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. He said, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Some have called this the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Is usually how it's stated, but I like what Jesus says. All things, all things 
No, no, you know, we, we don't make distinctions here. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you. All the things that you would have them do to you, do you even so to them. Jesus puts the onus on us. For this is the law and the prophets. We are to know what the law and the prophets are. For us, it is the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. We are to know. And then he says, enter ye in at the straight or narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. I want us to have singular hearts toward Jesus Christ. Because when we have many hearts wanting to go, yes, we, 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 we believe there's a God. Yes, we believe in God. Yes, we believe in Jesus. I go to church every week. I, I do this and I do that. And yeah, you know, but the rest of the week is mine. And so I, you know, whatever, if I go this way or that way, you know, it's, it's okay because I'll be there on Sunday. And if I can get all my good works outweigh my bad, It'll be okay. No, it's not okay, is it? Never has been okay. Few there be that find it. Boy, are we finding that out today. How few people really love Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, I'm not trying to say that in judgment. I mean, we all have to work our lives through, you know, every day. But there's a, there, there, there's a lot of hypocrisy from people that just, you know, they say, but they don't do. Only God knows. I mean, and we have to give that to God. We have to give that to the Lord, that he knows their hearts. But the fact is, he knows our hearts, too. And he knows where we need to be. And he, need, and he knows what he wants us to be, what he wants us to do. And then there's Leviticus 19, verse 18, that says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. And that was the law that was broken by his people. Not just his rejection, not just their disobedience toward God. It was the fact that they didn't love their neighbor as themselves. They loved themselves more. And too many people are loving themselves too much and not caring for the needs of others. Jesus in Matthew 5, going back to Matthew 5, verses 43 to 45, he said, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That's what it was coming down to in 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 the pharisaical Israel of Jesus' time. Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Is Jesus not interpreting the scriptures rightly to us when he said that? This is not a new law. 
Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. No, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. Let's not forget that statement of Jesus. That ye may be the children of your Father. Let's remember every day who we represent. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. You remember when you were evil? Before you came to Jesus? You might say, well, I wasn't that evil. Listen, if you were, if you were without Christ, there was an evil in you. And in me too. We all were evil. Why? Because we didn't consider God. We didn't consider who he was. We didn't consider what he was. We didn't consider what he did, what, what he did in sending his only begotten son. But when God opened our eyes, what happened? When he opened our heart, what happened? Every day the, the sun rose on us. Maybe there were times when we kind of say, wow, what a happy day I can have today. You know? Zippity-doo-dah. Zippity-yay. My, oh, my, what a wonderful day. Plenty of sunshine. <laughs> I had to finish the song. Coming my way. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-yay, yeah. Until what? Until the Lord revealed our hearts. And then all of a sudden, it wasn't about us anymore. All of a sudden, it was, it was painful. We had come to the understanding that we had committed high treason against the God who created the heavens and the earth. And we were guilty. And there was only one punishment. But Jesus came. Jesus came. And he took your place and my place on the cross. He shed his blood completely. He died where we should have died. He was buried with our sins. But on the third day, he rose again. And he made a way for us who would simply just believe and trust in what he did for us. He maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. But one day, the just and the unjust will be separated. The wheat and the tares will be separated. And where will we stand? Paul in Romans 13 verses 8 through 10 says, Oh, no man, anything but to love one another. 
For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no evil to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Because when we love, we die. And it is not us who live, but Christ who lives in us. In James 2, verse 8, it says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You do well. So, so there is this, this Christ-centered purpose that will be found in the book of Micah when we study it. In fact, the book radiates like the, prophet, the prophecy of Isaiah, the, the great anticipation of the coming Messiah. Jesus Christ is foreseen in several prophecies. First of all, the Messiah, the ruler of his people, will be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, verses 1 and 2, Now gather thyself in troops, and O daughter of troops, he hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, thou, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old from everlasting, from everlasting. Even before Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the promise of Messiah is given, was his goings forth known by God. The Messiah, the liberator and shepherd, will free his people from sin and all bondage. That's here in Micah, in Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Bozrah, as the flock in the midst of their fold. They shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and have passed through the gate and are gone out by it. And their king shall pass before them in the Lord on the head of them. And then there is the Messiah, the judge of the nations. He will conquer God's enemies and establish peace. The one true Messiah, that is Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Micah 4, verse 3. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. How interesting that this is something that is written on the walls of, of the United Nations in New York City. And are they striving for this? No. Because they don't believe peace comes from God. They believe peace comes from man. But it's kind of crazy how they, how they do things there. Well, I don't want to go into my rant on the United Nations, so I'll save that for another time. And then the Messiah, the king, will lead his people in triumph. Micah 7, verses 7 and 8. Therefore I will look unto the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. 
My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy. When I fall, I shall arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light unto me. And then the Messiah will also be for a united Israel and Judah, a renowned restorer and cleanser. The restorer and cleanser of his own people. And this again is in fact the theme of the book of Micah. The redemption and restoration of Israel by the coming Messiah. And that takes us back to Micah 5 verse 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of all from everlasting. Israel and Judah will begin a process of becoming one again. And in effect has already, but even more clearer when Messiah comes. And so now, as we close here, the book of Micah can be divided into three sections. And this is how we'll look at our study in the days to come. God's warning and the cause of coming judgment is found in, verses, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way through chapter 3, verse 12. The second part of Micah is the promise of a great future hope beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, and going all the way down through verse 15 of chapter 5. And then the third section of Micah, God's case against his people and his great promise of salvation begins in chapter 6, verse 1, and goes through the rest of the book, chapter 7, verse 20. And if there is a theme that we can latch on to tonight, as we prepare to study this prophecy, it is found in his great question in one of the loveliest passages in all of Scripture. It's in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Here's the question. Who is a God like unto thee? Isn't that the name of the prophet? Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities and thou will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Now the sea is pretty deep. Anybody want to go down and try to get those sins back? I don't think so. Verse 20. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. That is our introduction to Micah revisited. 